Good morning. Leviticus 1, 1 through 10, 14, and 17. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering and from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, we uh, just began a series on the book of Leviticus, which is the third book in the Bible. Leviticus really is all about a transformation process, which means it's a really big deal for us today because transformation is a huge topic in our culture. Everybody wants to live a transformed life. There are all kinds of books and conferences and YouTube videos all promising to show you how to transform yourself. We long for transformation. Leviticus is all about how that transformation happens. Because here we, here we are so far in the story. Book one, Genesis. God created the world to be a place of goodness and beauty and perfection. But because of human rebellion, everything's falling apart. And the big question is, what is God doing about that? Book two, Exodus, God rescues the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He says to them, um, Israel, he takes a, a group of people who were abused and exploited and oppressed. And he says, I'm beginning a transformation project. It begins with you and through you, I want to spread it to the whole world. Leviticus is all about how that transformation happens. And it all takes place in this tent. Verse 1, God called to Moses from the tent. Everything that happens in Leviticus, it's all centered around this tent. Now, the tent is the place where God dwells with his people, but the tent is also the place where the transformation process happens. And it begins with a series of offerings most of which are blood sacrifices, which means that right out of the gate, we're having cultural whiplash because this idea of blood sacrifice just feels so barbaric and primitive to us. So we say, haven't we left all that behind? 
Can't we move on from all this primitive superstition? That's a reasonable question. But I want to extend an invitation to you this morning um, that we should really understand what's happening in this passage before we simply assume that we should move on. There are five offerings in the beginning of Leviticus. We're going to look at each one of those offerings in the weeks to come because each one of them shows us something crucial about how transformation takes place. This week we begin with the first one, the burnt offering. And the Hebrew word for that, are you ready? It's ola. Can we say that? Ola. That means to go up or to ascend. What happens is after the animal is killed, it's burnt, and then the whole thing just goes up in smoke. What an image. So the question is, what in the world does a blood sacrifice like this have to do with transformation? Let's find out the answer by asking three questions, okay? Why do we need sacrifice? How does this sacrifice work? And lastly, how should we respond? Why do we need sacrifice? How does this sacrifice work? And how should we respond? Okay? First, why do we need sacrifice? Um, The burnt offering was the most basic and the most common of all the offerings. If you wanted to come into the presence of God for any reason, whether to give thanks or to ask for help, the burnt offering was what you bring. It was the most general offering of all of them. And this was an offering um, that was available for everybody. So, for instance, if you look at verse 3, it says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, but then in verse 10 it says, well, if it's from the flock, and then in verse 14 it says, if the offering is a burnt offering of birds. Now, here's what's going on. From the herd means a bull. That was really expensive, Only the most wealthy person could afford that. But from the flock means a goat or a lamb. That was a lot less expensive. Um, A bird was something you brought if you didn't have any money at all because anybody could get a bird. Do you see what's going on? God is saying, everybody come into my presence. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your economic status. God's saying, everybody come near. But here's the real question. Why do we need an offering to draw near to God in the first place? Why this need for sacrifice? Well, we actually see the answer. If you look at the end of verse 3, it says the offering is acceptable to the Lord. And again, you see at the end of verse 4, it says that the offering is accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So it, it uses this language of being accepted. Now, here's what this means. Every human being has a deep need to be accepted. And yet, in every human being, there's also this innate sense that there are parts of our lives that are not acceptable. We want to be accepted, but we don't feel acceptable. Every human being longs to be accepted, cherished, welcomed, affirmed, accepted. So, for instance, that's why the call-out is such a potent form of punishment in our culture. A call-out is when somebody does something wrong, and then they're called out online. Whatever they did, it's made public on social media. As a result, that person is excluded from community. They're no longer accepted. That is one of the most painful things anybody can possibly experience because the deepest need of every human part is to be accepted. Now, um, if God exists, and I understand there may be some of you here this morning, you're not sure 
whether or not you believe God exists. But if God exists, and especially if this God created human beings to be in relationship with himself, that means the deepest need of every human heart is to be accepted by God accepted by him. That means every human being longs to be accepted. And yet, as I said, we all have this innate sense that there are parts of our lives that are not acceptable. Or we could say it like this. We all have this instinctive idea that we were made for more. We all have this instinctive idea of what we ought to be. And I'm not talking about what your parents told you you should be or what your friends or society or the world says you should be. I'm talking about that innate sense that we were made for more. We all have this instinctive idea of what we ought to be. And yet we also have this irrepressible knowledge of what we really are. Here's what we ought to be. Here's what we really are. There's a gap between those two things. And as a result of that gap, we don't feel acceptable. We experience pain over that gap. Every human being experiences that. So, um, you know, this is just humanity 101. This, This really is the human condition. Because throughout history, nobody has ever denied the experience of this gap. Um, The real question is, how do we explain the gap? In our modern secular culture, we have rejected the Bible's answer for the gap. The Bible says it's because of sin. So in the beginning, in the garden, uh, human beings were able to dwell in the presence of God and be accepted because they were also acceptable. There was no gap. Genesis 2 says that they were naked and felt no shame. There, There was no gap between what they were supposed to be and what they really were. No gap, no shame. But because of human rebellion, because they rejected God, now there was a gap. It says they were naked and afraid. All of a sudden, there's a gap between what they were meant to be and what they really were. Friends, we all experience that gap, every single one of us. One of the most stunning examples of this um, for me is William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Flies. Um, As far as I can tell, by the way, William Golding was not a Christian, and yet that book is a stunning parable of the human condition. If you remember it, maybe you read it in high school. It's about a a group of British schoolboys who are marooned on an island with no adults, no accountability, and, and at the beginning, they're getting along together pretty well, but pretty soon it starts breaking down into factions, hostility, fighting, and eventually murder. So that by the end of the book, the boys set the island on fire and they chase one lone boy named Ralph across the island in a bloody rage, chasing him to kill him. And so that by the end, they, he arrives on the beach exhausted and he collapses in the certainty that he's about to die a brutal, bloody death when he looks up and he sees a British naval officer standing over him. And it's in the presence of this adult, this gaze of accountability that Ralph and all of the other boys come to this heart-wrenching awareness of the gap. And here's what it says at the end of the book. Ralph's tears began to flow, and sobs shook him. He gave himself up to them now for the first time on the island, great shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. His voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island, and infected by that emotion... The other little boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, with filthy body, matted hair, and unwiped nose, Ralph wept for the end of innocence 
the darkness of man's heart. Friends, that's us, if we're being honest with ourselves. We all experience that gap. We, we all experience that gaze of accountability, the knowledge that we all stand there with filthy body and unwiped noses and matted hair, and that we stand guilty. And the question is not do we experience that. The question throughout history is how do we explain that? The answer of modern secular culture is we psychologize that. We say that experience is the result of um, emotional trauma or low self-esteem or religious paranoia or poor parenting or toxic shame, but not because of sin. It can't be sin, we say. That's too primitive. That's, that's too negative. That makes people feel bad about themselves. And yet that's where writers like Golding and many others recently in our culture have been saying, no, wait, we have to be more honest than that. We have to be honest about the reality that, that there is a darkness and an evil inside every single one of us. And it's not low self-esteem that needs therapy. It's sin that needs forgiveness. We have to take responsibility for that. And by the way, that taking responsibility for the sin and the guilt and the darkness in our own lives, that does not mean ignoring the trauma that may have happened in your own life for which you are not responsible. And by the way, the Bible shows us that. So if you look at, at the first humans, Adam and Eve, before they sinned, what happened to them? They were sinned against. The serpent attacks them with lies. Or in this story, think about who the Israelites are. As we just mentioned, they were enslaved. They were traumatized. They were abused and exploited and oppressed. And yet God still says that when you come into my presence, you need an offering. Why? Because there's a gap in their lives too. Because even though God delivered them and rescued them out of slavery, just a few months later, they rejected God. They betrayed him by worshiping a golden calf. It was like spitting in God's face. Friends, why do we need sacrifice? Because we all need something to cover the gap. And that's the first thing we see here. But secondly, how does this particular sacrifice work? What's going on with this burnt offering? Well, Let's take a look at what's happening. Uh, there are actually many steps in the process, but let's look at the big ones. And the first one is this. In verse 3, it says, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. Now, that word, without defect, are you ready for one more Hebrew word? The word is temim. Can we say that? Temim. Temim means perfect. It means without defect or blemish. It means spotless, blameless, perfect, tamim. And, and the reason it has to be tamim, we've just spent the whole first point talking about this, is because it has to be tamim because we're not. And we need something to cover the gap. So that's the first thing that happens. Find an offering, an animal that's tamim. Secondly, um, in verse 4 it says, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now, that doesn't just mean that you kind of gently rest your hand on top of the animal. Literally, it means you're pressing your hand down. It's really like you're leaning your weight on the top of this animal. You're leaning on it. And, and that hand leaning can mean different things in different contexts. But in this context, what it probably means is it's, this, it's a symbolic way of transferring our sins onto the head of the animal. So you have this perfect representative, 
taking our sins upon itself and then going into the presence of God on our behalf. In fact, verse 4 tells us that explicitly. Uh, It says that when you lean your hands on it, you see what it says? It will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Now, atonement is a huge word in Leviticus. And we're going to look at it in a lot more detail when we get to chapter 16, the day of atonement. But literally, the word means, it just means to cover something. But as I was studying this week, um, all of the scholars, all of the commentators, um, unanimously, they said, to make atonement has two primary meanings. One of the meanings could be to make purification or to purify something. There there are going to be places later on we'll look at where that's the primary meaning. But there are other places where the primary meaning is is to make a ransom or to make payment for something. In the burnt offering, that's the primary meaning that's happening here. It's to make a ransom or to make a payment for something. It's kind of like if you go to the restaurant, they bring the bill, and you realize, uh uh-oh, I don't have any money. But someone comes along and says, hey, don't worry, I've got you covered. They ransom you. They make the payment for you. In essence, they're covering the gap. That's what's happening here in this burnt offering. It's covering the gap. Now, here's why this is so important for us. This means that we can stop trying to cover the gap ourselves. Because remember what we said, everyone longs to be accepted, and yet we also know there are huge parts of our lives that are not acceptable We need something to cover the gap. And so we invest our lives, we invest ourselves in all kinds of what I'd like to call acceptability projects. What's an acceptability project? So for instance, maybe for some of you it might be money. You say, if I could just make a certain amount of money, then I'd be acceptable. That's your acceptability project. For others of you, it might be achievements. You might say, if I could just be the best and make it look like I'm not even trying, then I'd be acceptable. Or for others of you, it might be relationships or romance. You say, if I could just find someone to love me, then I would be acceptable. We could go right on down the list. Maybe for others of you, it might be looks or your grades or your status. Maybe it's being unique or special. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's having lots of really wonderful, pleasurable experiences, one after the other, that help you forget the pain of the gap. Maybe it's um, being in charge or in control. Um, maybe it's, it's being courageous and bold. Maybe it's being on the right side of the history. I don't know, but, but, but whatever it is, all of these things, these acceptability projects, you know what they are? They're our attempts to cover the gap. The, all of these things are our attempts to... to to achieve the acceptance that we long for rather than to lean on the provision uh, of somebody else to provide the acceptance that we need for us. That's what's going on here. But God says, no, instead of, of, of doing that, I want you to bring an offering, a tamim, representative, and I want you to lean your hands on it. In other words, I want you to relinquish all of your acceptability projects and lay them on the head of this offering. So those are the first two things. A tamim representative, you lay your hands on it, you relinquish your acceptability projects and put them on the head of the offering. But then what happens next? After that, it says you slaughter the animal, you pour out its blood. But then the very last thing that happens that I want to focus on, it says you burn the whole thing. It goes up in smoke. And then what happens after that? Verse 9, if you look at that, 
It says the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When it goes up in smoke, hola, that means it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When it says pleasing to the Lord, you know what that is? Acceptance. It means that God accepts you. It means God is pleased with you. But the only way that happens is if the whole thing goes up in smoke, not just a part of it, but the whole thing. There has to be a full payment in order to fully cover the gap. You know what that is? Friends, that's a picture of grace. That's grace. In other words, this is not God saying, okay, I'm going to make you a deal. Um, I'm going to cover 80% of the gap, and you just have to cover 20%. Or even if it's just 10%, or even if it's just 1%, if there's still anything at all that we provide in order to cover the gap, then it's not grace. And by the way, that's what religion is. Traditional religion is all about us covering the gap. But the gospel is all about a God who covers the gap for us. That's grace, and that's what we need, and that's what we see here. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful, but I can't see how in the world the death of an animal like this could possibly provide the the kind of covering and acceptance that we all long for. And you know what? You're absolutely right. It can't. And it was never meant to. The only thing it was ever meant to do really was to point us towards the only one who is the true and acceptable sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And by the way, the New Testament says this explicitly in the letter to the Hebrews It says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cover the gap. It it says, but we have been made holy through through the offering of the body of Jesus. That we've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, he says that Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. When Paul calls Jesus a fragrant offering, you know what he's doing? He's using the language of the burnt offering. And he's saying, Jesus Christ is the true burnt offering. Jesus is the ultimate burnt offering to which all of the other burnt offerings simply pointed. Because who is Jesus? Tamim. He's the only one who was perfectly accepted because he's the only one who was also perfectly acceptable. So at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was baptized. And all of the gospel accounts tell us that when he came up out of the water, the voice of God came out of heaven and it said, for everyone to hear, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Well pleased. Accepted. Jesus is is the only one who is perfectly accepted because he's the only one who's perfectly acceptable. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ did not just give a part of himself. He gave the whole thing. He gave everything so that, in effect, Jesus Christ went up in smoke. And as the smoke of his sacrifice rose up to heaven, an aroma pleasing to the Lord, a fragrant offering, that means that you and I now are fully and finally accepted because Jesus Christ was slaughtered like a common animal. His blood was poured out, and then the fire of all God's wrath, his justified wrath, on all the darkness and and the evil in humanity, all of God's wrath, it consumed Jesus completely so that we could be accepted completely. 
And friends, if that's true, then what does that mean for our lives? That's the last thing I want to look at. We've seen why we need this sacrifice. There's a gap, and we need something to cover the gap. We've seen how this sacrifice works, that there has to be a perfect representative. We have to lay our hands on that, lay our sins on that, and then it has to go up in in God's presence on our behalf and, and, and buy our acceptance for us. But then lastly, if that's true, how should we respond? Well, I mean, what are the takeaways for us? Because, yeah, we've got this ancient ritual, but what does that mean for us today? You know, as I mentioned, this, this, there's a lot of steps in this process, but just the three that we just looked at in this sacrifice, if we use those three things and then look at Jesus through the lens of those three things, here's the applications I want to leave you with today, and there's three of them. We look at his perfection, we lean on his provision, and we live for his pleasure. Okay? First, we look at his perfection. So here's the question. When God says to the Israelites, I want you to bring an offering that's tamim, here's the question. How in the world would would they know? How would they know it's perfect? The only way is, well, first of all, um, these offerings would have come from their own herd or flocks of animals. That means that they would have been intimately familiar with the animals in question. But even more than that, in order to find out whether or not the animal was tamim, they would have had to inspect every little detail of the animal. They w- it, that would have been a hands-on process. That means they would have spent a rather large amount of time gazing on the perfection of the offering. And I think you can see where we're going with this. What would happen to you if you were to spend time gazing on the perfection of Jesus, looking at the perfection of your offering, so that um, when you're driving down the street or walking through the neighborhood or, or um, standing in line at the grocery store, I don't know, when you have free time on your hands, what if you were, instead of gazing at something else like your phone or a magazine, what if you were to spend a little bit of that time gazing on the perfection of Jesus? Because Jesus is like, he's like an, a jewel with an infinite number of facets. And as you turn that thing around and look at all the different facets, you're gazing at his perfection and all the different facets of his perfection. So you would say, Jesus, you're perfect in goodness and righteousness. Jesus, you, you perfectly meet every need. Jesus, you perfectly achieve all things. There's no one as unique or special as you. There's no one as fascinating or interesting as you. You are the perfect security and guidance we're all longing for. Jesus, you're the perfect satisfaction of every desire. You're perfect in courage and boldness. Uh, Jesus, in you there is perfect peace. If we were to gaze and look on the perfection of Jesus, all of a sudden what happens is slowly but surely the stress begins melting away. The anxiety begins fading. And and all of that worrying that we experience over the gap begins to fade away from our lives because we're looking at his perfection. But secondly, we lean on his provision. And here's what that means. Um, as, As we saw, part of this ritual was we would lean our hands on the animal. We would lean our hands on top of the, um, the offering. Now, now, here's what this means for us today. You know, we live in a world in which every single one of us, we feel like we have to be acceptable before we can be accepted. Right? That's just the world we live in. We feel like we have to be acceptable before we can be accepted. And, and I know we often say things like, well, we should all just learn how to accept ourselves, but we know it doesn't work like that. 
It doesn't work. We feel like we have to be acceptable before we can be accepted. It's exhausting, isn't it? Always feeling like that? You're never done. You're never finished. What if, hmm? What if instead of beginning with being acceptable, what if you could just begin with being accepted? Completely apart from whether or not you're acceptable. What if you could just begin with being accepted? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to contribute anything. You're accepted. There would be a confidence and a joy and a peace in your life if you knew that were true of you. Friends, that is exactly what the gospel offers you. But the only way it happens is because Jesus, the the, the true, perfect, pleasing representative who gained your acceptance, he provided everything necessary in order to cover the gap. But that only becomes ours if we lean on his provision, if we relinquish our acceptability projects and load them all on the head of Jesus, lean on him and lay all our acceptability projects on his head. And by the way, the only way we can really do that fully is if we're growing in awareness of what our gaps really are. You know what self-awareness is? Self-awareness basically means that you're growing in an understanding of your emotions, of your strengths and your weaknesses. It's growing in an understanding of your deepest fears, also your greatest, deepest motivations and drives and desires. It also means that you're growing in an awareness of how your personality affects people. How do people actually experience you? Are you you growing in an awareness of that and how your fears and your desires and your emotions are affecting other people? The only way that happens is if you have some people in your life that you can trust to help you see the gaps in your lives. So first, we look at his perfection. We lean on his provision. But lastly, we live for his pleasure. And here's what I mean by this. You know, the the burnt offering, uh, as we're going to see, it was the only offering... Um, that nobody got to eat any of it. The whole thing just goes up in smoke. That would have been a very powerful visual experience, that as the flesh of this animal just goes up in smoke before the presence of God, in the same way, we're being transformed into people who are now finding themselves pleasing and acceptable to God. The more you see Jesus giving everything for you, the more that transforms you into the kind of person who wants to give everything to him. That's what grace does to you. Because remember what what religion is. Um, if, If you're paying 20% or 10% or even 1% to cover the gap, that puts you into a negotiating relationship with God. Now, that puts you into a relationship where you feel like you have bargaining power with God. And and the way you know that's your relationship with God is you will, on the one hand, be oftentimes anxious and afraid because you feel like you're not doing your part. Or you're going to be angry and resentful because you feel like I am doing my part, but God's not holding up his end of the bargain and giving me what I think I deserve. If that's your relationship with God, then you're always going to be holding something back. There's always going to be some part of your life that you're like, no, God, hands off this part. Can't touch this. And whatever that thing is, that's your real God. But grace means God gives everything completely. He provides everything uh, completely and that we provide nothing. And that means, grace means, there is nothing God can't ask you. There's nothing he can't ask you. The more you see Jesus giving everything for you, the more that transforms you into the kind of person that wants to give everything to him. In other words, 
you're not just giving a part of your life, you're giving the whole thing. Your life becomes a burnt offering to God. You give him the whole thing. Can you say that? Can you do that? Can you say to God, God, help yourself to my life. God, you can do whatever you want with me. I'm holding nothing back. I give everything to you. You have given everything completely to me, so I give myself completely to you. You know what happens when you do that? Friends, the gospel shows us a God who loves you so much. He loves you so much that he died to cover your gap, but even more than that, he's doing everything necessary to transform you to erase the gap to erase the gap, not just to cover it. No one ever put this better than C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity. He says, the command, be perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command if we let him. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Friends, look on his perfection. Lean on his provision live for his pleasure, that's transformation. The process will be long, and in parts very painful, but that's what, for, what, what we're in for. Total transformation. Let's pray.